Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I am your host, Jason Miles, here for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, thank you so much for joining us on this lovely Saturday morning. Can't speak for where a lot of you live, but today, here in lovely Baja, California, very sunny Saturday morning. If you're a returning subscriber, welcome back. So glad to have you here with us. All of us here at TIR would like to send a big thank you to all the subscribers on all platforms. Without you, we couldn't do this. For those that don't know, this is the Saturday free show. There is no bonus champagne room. It's our way of allowing you guys to get a glimpse of what goes on beyond the velvet rope of TIR. So if you're enjoying what we do here, you have the means to support us. Think about becoming a patron for as little as $2 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to past and present champagne rooms. Join us for movie nights and so much, much more. Today is a day that will live in infamy. It seems like a lifetime ago when the president, when the then president, sorry, Donald Trump called on his loyal and rabid base of followers to join him in challenging the results of the 2020 election as an unjust display of electoral misconduct by his arch nemesis in the Democratic Party. Many of us watched in shock and horror at the sight of a combination of far-right groups, conspiracy theorists, and anti-statists taking over the Capitol. There was no real organization and some died. Some Capitol Police officers took their lives after the events of January 6th. Uh, I know many people that watch shows like this tend to make light of that day. But now, three years later, we should take a look on how it happened. Did it indeed fail? And will those events lead to another Trump presidency? Or will the memory of that day be enough to scare Democratic voters into making sure we don't see another Trump election. In a recent article for The Intercept, a number of federal judges have been quite lenient on those involved in the Capitol attacks. While one might assume that the sympathetic federal judges were Trump appointees, it is a bipartisan consensus of judges. This fact goes against the Trump narrative of January 6ers as being political prisoners and getting harsher sentences because of their allegiance to Trump and his MAGA brand. From the Intercept article, Trump and his allies have repeatedly claimed that the federal judicial system has been unnecessarily punitive in its treatment of January 6th defendants, complaining that they are, quote, political prisoners who have been unfairly persecuted for trying to prevent the congressional certification of Biden's 2020 election. One leading January 6th defendant compared himself to yourself a Jew living in Nazi Germany and said that his only crime is opposing those who are destroying our country. The intercepts analysis sharply contradicts that right-wing narrative. In many cases, judges have rejected prosecutors requests for prison time, often reducing defendants sentences to home detention or probation. Defendants have been sentenced to standard prison terms in 429 out of 719 cases, or 60%. Another 31 defendants were sentenced to in intermittent incarceration 
this is interesting intermittent incarceration it's like some Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein level incarceration intermittent incarceration meaning they only had to serve time on nights and weekends that's right folks they serve time like a 90 cell phone plan <laughs> not funny that's insane Home detention was given instead instead of prison in 101 cases, while defendants in 135 cases got probation. Our guests today have written a graphic novel series, and the first book is out now, and it's called One Six, what we call the show today. Um, I tried to put the cover as the thumbnail, so I'm quite didn't make it too dark it depicts a different america post the january 6th protest one in which the rioters were successful what would that world look like what would resistance look like please welcome writers alan jenkins and gan golan alan is a writer law professor and human rights advocate he teaches courses on racial justice strategic communications and supreme court jurist judith's juris this is what happens when Pascal is in jurisprudence and is a frequent commentator in broadcast and print media. Gan Golan is an activist, illustrator, and New York Times bestselling author who has been working for decades to help movements for human rights, uh, equity, and democracy. His critically acclaimed graphic novel, The Adventures of Unemployed Man, played a role in the Occupy Wall Street movement. Please welcome my guest today, Alan Jenkins. And Don Galan. <laughs> you Can you hear me? Yeah, fantastic to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, so I do have to ask, where were you guys when January 6th happened? I know where I was. I was supposed to be interviewing the now late Mike Davis, who wrote the book, City of Courts, if you're familiar sociologist and right when we're supposed to do the interview he goes i'm gonna have to cancel because i'm watching this town hall push on the news i'll never forget that um where were you guys alan i'll start with you where were you yeah i was at home i live on the east coast and i was watching and i knew that it was in the, in the words of former president trump uh that it would be wild uh, but, uh, but it never occurred to me that uh, a, all that happened that day would would play out and that uh, so many folks uh, in the political class would almost immediately start reinventing the history and minimizing it and justifying it, uh, you know, both as it was happening and and immediately after. Uh, so, you know, like a lot of folks, I was sitting on the couch watching it on television and and also on social media uh you know having my mind blown Don, what about you yeah i was also at home with my family here uh in laredo texas uh right directly on the u.s mexico border i mean the the rio grande is just yards away from where i am right now um where we had been dealing for quite some time with sort of this uh this incredibly animated uh, militia movement of uh, um, MAGA and larger uh, extremist groups who are coming down here uh, very aggressively. Um, and this, you know, we thought we were at least uh, putting them, uh, you know, some constraints on them after uh, Trump's defeat in the election. And so to see them 
um, resurgent and willing to, you know, use violence to try and uh, uh, attack the Capitol and and um, steal an election, um, you know, it was really disturbing because, um, you know, we've sort of seen uh, what that uh, kind of behavior can manifest in down here, but it was shocking to see it happening uh, in the nation's capital. Um, so yeah, very, very, very disturbing day. I haven't been in your region of Texas. I, I, I didn't talk to you guys that long before the show, and I don't know how much information the PR company gave you. I mean, I once had a PR company. It's just, there's an interview. You know? So I, I've played music for years and toured all over the forever. So I've definitely been in uh, border towns in Texas. Mm-hmm. They are different. El Paso is extremely different than <laughs> than where than, than where you are. Um, is there kind of like a Minuteman vibe where you are? Well, what's interesting is that overwhelmingly border communities um, oppose the kinds of policies that Trump has been pushing. You know, it's all based on a on a narrative that doesn't match our lived reality here at all. You know, that this border is a war zone and is in crisis. You know, I sit on the riverbanks, the Rio Grande, it's some of them with my kids. It's one of the most serene. There's no walls, serene, peaceful places I've ever been. Um, and, and the feeling is often there. The invasion is coming from our side of the border as these sort of militia groups come down here. Many of them are not local. Um, they do appear. Um, and a couple interesting anecdotes, um, you know, the largest Trump train when, you know, these huge caravans of trucks with armed, you know, dudes uh, come and invade, you know, um, a city. Uh, the largest one happened in Laredo, Texas, and that was all from out of town. Other parts of Texas, hundreds of miles away from here, other parts of the United States. So those are really outsiders who are coming here, um, you know, imagining that they're here to uh, d- defend the United States from invasion. But to us locals, they really are the invasion and they're not welcome to be riding through the streets with Confederate flags and other sort of quasi racist slogans and, and weapons. You know, this is our home, our town. So. Um, and interestingly enough, the first appearance, public appearance of Elmer Stewart Rhodes, the uh, the leader, uh, founder of the Oath Keepers that were very central to what happened on January 6th, um, his first public appearance was right here in Laredo, Texas. Uh, he appeared actually at a GOP-sponsored rally directly um, on the riverbank um, and uh, showed up, you know, talking about how we should invade Mexico. So... Um, yeah, they're here, but they're, um, they're not from here. (laughs) Um, that's, that's interesting. Uh, so what prompted you guys to write this kind of man in the high castle story of an alternate universe? We're getting out of the Marvel 616 here and getting, yeah, I can get nerdy with you guys. Getting into the alternate, uh, multiverse of a a trump victory um the first book definitely takes place in this alternate universe and then the second book uh it looks like it talks about how you get there um so tell us a little bit about you know, what was the inspiration well we know what, what january 6th was the inspiration but what got you two together to say hey we have to write this this comic about this or something about this let's make it a comic yeah jason so the you know the short answer is uh i love comics and i love democracy and uh i i 
think and, and still think that uh, comic books have a role to play as they have historically. We can talk about that uh, in uh, combating bigotry and fascism and, and advancing uh, democratic values. And I, you know, I knew Gan, uh, we'd worked together before, and I knew that he was somebody who shared those values and also just tremendous creative spirit and ability. And so I reached out to him immediately after January 6th and, uh, you know, when he was in. Uh, the, the slightly longer version is, uh, you know, for weeks after the insurrection, uh, I was literally waking up in the middle of the night worrying about uh, the forces that got us there and the fact that they were still gaining strength. Uh, the white supremacy and Christian nationalism and the uh, anti-Semitism and transphobia and, and uh, Islamophobia, uh, the, the disinformation, the you know authoritarian instinct, uh, all of those were uh, gaining strength and in fact, I would say are stronger now uh, around the country than they were on January 6th. And yet it seemed like the country was ready to move on. Uh, people were, you know, shake, a few people shook their heads. Uh, even a few uh, Republicans at that time condemned what had happened, although mm -hmm. they're now many of them changing their story. Uh, but we uh, seem to already be forgetting what had happened just a few weeks before. And so, you know, I wanted to figure out ways to ring the alarm bell to, uh, you know, not just a cautionary tale, although it is that, but also to help call people to action. And, you know, so I could have written, a, I'm a law professor, I could have written a law review article and would have been read by tens of people, I'm sure. But uh, I'm also a comic book fan. And uh, I knew that through that pop culture vehicle, we could reach a lot of folks who, you know, love democracy, love our country, don't have time to read uh, the 800 plus page House Select Committee report. Uh, mm -hmm. on the insurrection, aren't glued to, you know, CNN or what have you, uh, but could be pulled in by a compelling story, uh, by a, an entertaining story, but also one that is, uh, you know, in the best tradition of speculative fiction. And so uh, that's why we made it a character driven, hopefully entertaining, uh, and also with a lot of empathy. We can talk about that as we go on. John? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was it was uh, I was busy trying to stop a border wall uh, here uh, in in South Texas. I work on climate stuff that you know is more than a full time job. But when Alan gave me the pitch, I I said yes immediately. Which is uh, you know what would have happened had the insurrection succeeded, and um, telling the story of what. Um, the Trump movement and its its broad coalition of groups from white supremacist groups to militias um, to Christian nationalist groups, what they really envisioned for this country um, felt like a very worthwhile story to turn into a comic book so people could really see um, what it is that they're talking about. And um, so I was totally sold. I love dystopian fiction. I think it's a it's a great way to talk about um you know uh the world we're trying to prevent from happening and um and uh and also a way to talk about the 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 details of january 6th which were still emerging at the time they're still emerging now but um you know we're barraged by so much information so many details that a lot of it can get lost and so in in um 
in our comic, we really spell out a lot of the most important details of what preceded January 6th leading up to it and on the day. And it's, uh, you know, it was shocking even to me when, when um, you know, I saw footage, I was like, whoa, you know, that is actually very violent. And that's, um, that, that's uh, unmistakable, that's not a tourist um, uh, trip. That is um, real violence that's being practiced. And also, you know, behind the scenes, what Trump and company were trying to do to steal the election, stop the steal, um, the rally to save America. All of these were part of, um, you know, uh, to drum up a, a violent mob to actually be part of the process of um, stealing this last U.S. election uh, in partnership with um, sitting members of Congress working behind the scenes to install fake electors, you know, imposters with forged documents and then get those rubber stamped by uh, the, the vice president. Um, and which is why Trump was so furious with him when he refused to do that. It was it was really a much more comprehensive orchestrated plan um, to overturn the results of the election and reinstall Trump as president. But but do you think that a man like Donald Trump, who really has no, this is just my opinion. I don't know Donald Trump. Never, never. I'm not Russell Simmons. I've never hung out with him. Um, do you think a man like Donald Trump, who comes off as someone with no real political ideology, when it's convenient for him to be um, a Democrat, he's a Democrat. It's a third way Democrat at some point. Then, you know, he's a Republican. He was a libertarian when he ran uh, or attempted to run the first time, I think, in 2000. Um he definitely likes tension. Um, he was able to use attention in a way that uh, I don't think we've ever seen before. You know, he walked right out of the television studio into uh, Oval Office. Is it more of him attention seeking and having to be? A bit, and it may sound overly simplistic, but I think he has a psychotic need to be you know kind of in the news to that level um is the psychotic need for attention greater than the want to be president like do you really do you think he really wants to be president that bad well i, I sorry go ahead john i would say he really wants to stay out of jail and that's probably <laughs> the primary reason that he's running at this point it's literally the the only route for him and and many of his other of his uh, allies and cronies um so that's that's an amazing uh you know sort of campaign goal um but i would say this is um everything you're saying may be true but this is much bigger than trump trump is really much is really a, a catalyst um, there, are, you know, he in some ways was the biggest liability to uh, the movement that he was that instigating because he's, you know, disorganized, incompetent, corrupt, cowardly, not really willing to go out in front, letting other people take the fall for him, mm -hmm. as many have. Um, but uh, and that's part of the reason that January 6th came so close, but ultimately fell apart. Um, but those lessons have been learned. Um, there are a lot of people around Trump that are much more serious, much more organized, um, that understand his role in this larger movement, but really do have a fairly comprehensive plan for the um, total dismantling of democratic institutions in, this uni in the United States um, and everything that would then follow. Um, so there's there's a lot at stake and we can almost pay too much attention to Trump 
um, because it's really Trumpism, Trump, the larger Trump movement um, that I think is the concern here. Okay. Alan? Yeah, I, I would just add Trump, you know, hasn't always been a Republican, but he's always been a white supremacist. Uh, That's I, I'm, I'm from New York way back in the day in 1989 uh, mm -hmm. during the, the so-called Central Park Five mm -hmm. uh, case, which was really uh, the, the railroading of, of mm -hmm. black young men who had not committed the terrible crime that was committed by somebody else in Central, with the Central Park jogger. Trump was calling for the death penalty mm -hmm. in the context of kids uh, and uh, very much rooted in uh, race and racism. And we've seen him do the same thing again and again uh, with uh, our Muslim and uh, Arab brothers and sisters, with uh, Latinx folks and his, uh, you know, what he said about uh, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Uh, so he's a white supremacist and he has fully thrown himself in now with a group of white supremacists and, uh, you know, uh, militia groups and far-right conspiracy theorists, uh, as well as the most conservative Supreme Court we've ever seen, and more importantly, the most anti-human rights and civil rights uh, Supreme Court we've ever seen. So he's an existential threat. I don't know whether he wants to be president uh, for revenge, primarily, <laughs> or for uh, power, primarily, or to stay out of jail, mm -hmm. primarily, although it might not prevent him, even if he wins, from staying out of of prison or jail, uh, but I do know that he's an existential threat. Also, uh, I know, Jason, that you tried to put up a thumbnail of our, our comic book. Mm -hmm. I might just happen to have one here. Ah. So folks can see issue two uh, of one six, the graphic novel, which is, is uh, just out in stores. And here's issue one, which is already out. And I might also happen to have the website URL. <laughs> one six, comicstore.com where folks uh, can buy the book also on, on Amazon. Um, wherever people are watching or listening to the show, there actually are links in the description to, to the comic. I can't have you guys on and not have a, a link to the, to the comic, which I actually found rather entertaining. I too am a fan of science fiction. Uh, one of our favorite guests here, um, uh, Professor Michael Harris has a new book out called Come With Me If You Want to Live, if you know that's Arnold Schwarzenegger's line in Terminator 2. Um, and it's about how science fiction has been trying to tell us about our present, not so much our future. Um, he starts with uh, Blade Runner, which is in the past now. And, and the whole, wow, whole chapter is like, Blade Runner is our past. Like, um, so for me, when I got the the pitch from the PR company that you guys wrote a thing about an alternate universe, I was like, hell yeah. And then it starts off, you know, totally to me kind of futuristic, even though it's not really supposed to be futuristic. How many years in the future does it start off? And just like a couple of years in the future, right? I would say it's the alternative present um, okay. rather than the alternative future. Uh, we really talk about how, you know, had Trump won, what would the world look like already? And we start to spell that out in issue number one, we land you straight in the middle of the action where that world has already started to change. And um, I don't wanna to give too much away, but um, there's, uh, you know, uh, the landscape of DC has, has already begun to 
be transformed as uh, monuments are torn down and, you know, uh, um, renamed uh, to, uh, let's say, there's a giant uh, installation of an Iwo Jima style monument to honor the heroes of uh, of one six. Uh, that's basically foregrounds, you know, the uh, the QAnon shaman heroically uh, yeah. leading the charge. Um, and a lot of other details, if you look sort of in the, in the background, there's a lot of world building in it. Um, but yeah, all that is, is taking place, uh, in the here and now of what could have happened. Um, and we're going to dive deeper into that in future issues, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not just the world that could have happened, but, you know, some version of that still might be out there if, um, Trump is successful this next time around. Now, you guys got kind of, it seems like you guys got kind of a dream team of artists also to work on this. So if people that are watching the show are familiar or fans of any of the Marvel stuff, looks like you guys got uh, quite a few people from the Marvel Universe to do a lot of the, the artistic work and inking. We did. Yep. We were really fortunate to to get some amazing artists for both the, the main work and uh, the some of the alternate uh, variant covers that we had done. Those of the geeks in the in your audience will know that every good comic book series has a, a variant cover, mm -hmm. uh, and so we've got quite a few of those. But I, I, Gan, I'll let you talk about the the artists since you've worked uh, most closely with them. Yeah, uh, we're working with the great Will Rosado, who's done a lot of you know classic Marvel and DC titles. Worked on things like GI Joe, which strangely yeah. was like really appropriate for <laughs> some of the storytelling we're doing. Um, he recently worked on La Borinquena, which is a great title if you haven't seen it, about a Puerto Rican superhero in the wake of uh, Hurricane Maria. And then um, uh, we're working with Carl Moline, who's worked on a number of titles. And then, um, uh, you know, uh, Jamal Eigel, um, that's been doing amazing work these last few years, uh, does a variant cover. Pia Guerrera, who um, is an incredible uh uh, political cartoonist does an amazing Trump as she's got the next issue. She's got the cover for that. Um, Alex Albadri, both um, a uh, NASA scientist and amazing political poster artist. Um, and then let's not forget, like, you know, comics are, are almost like making a film. It's not just, you know, you draw some stuff on paper. You have, uh, you know, your, your pencilers, your inkers, your mm -hmm. colorists, your letterists, those are all different people and they're all really good at what they do. And so we have Lee Lowridge on colors, just gives the whole thing a particular sort of surreal dystopian feel. Um, were you trying to have a darker look to it? Because again, if we're, if we're talking about the present that we're in and as I'm reading it, it does kind of have, I don't want to say Mad Max, but it does almost have a bit of a futuristic feel, especially the way it starts off. There's a character that is trying to destroy a drone, right? Because drones are spying on people everywhere. And the resistance uh, is Antifa fascists. And there's this big image of a, of a Trump statue and there's a rally. And uh, at the rally, they're talking about the brave men that lost their lives um what do they call it what do you guys call it i forget you just call it january 6th yeah we talk about it as uh on that great day in the words of uh of our trump character our version of trump and mm -hmm. uh you know independence day which which uh they think of yes 
Yes, yes, the the new the new Independence Day. And is that the guy from the Proud Boys talking? Uh, there there may or may not be a resemblance. Yeah, to the founder. <laughs> I was looking. I was like, is this uh, supposed to be the Proud Boys guy? But like, yeah, what? yeah. For those who, though, I think people will really see a lot of likenesses or details or things that they can they can pick out that are based. You know, everything we do, even though it's fictional, is based on a lot of real world research. Um, you know, even his speech that he gives, he says, remember this day forever. That's actually a Trump from quote him, uh, from quote from Trump himself that he said on January 6th, thinking that this would be a great heroic day remembered in history, um, which in this version of the story, it is. Of course, we absolutely should remember this day forever for reasons other than Trump and this character want. Um, and it's a day that should, you know, be remembered in infamy and for all the 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 danger that it presented um but um but in their version it's it's a day to celebrate and that's an actual quote from from trump and then you, you know guys, uh, go ahead go ahead Alan. sorry to no, 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 no. Uh, just just a, a couple other points you know one is that it, it is dark the the book in some ways but there's fun there's hope uh, there's this, uh, you know, idea of resistance and issues three and four are going to go even deeper into that. And, you know, that's an important part of this story. We don't know how our country's story will end, but, uh, you know, without resistance and hope, we know how it will end. Other thing I wanted to mention, because I had this in reaction to some of what I saw in the chat, uh, this week we sent free copies to over 150 election deniers in Congress so <laughs> they can grapple with, you know, the the implications of what they tried to do. We also uh -huh. sent it to a bunch of um, of election, or I should say, democracy defenders in both parties. Uh, we we sent a copy to to Ron DeSantis. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, this is in reaction to to what one of your um, uh, I saw in the chat. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we're encouraging folks to go in and send copies to mm -hmm. your elected officials, whether they are supporters uh, of democracy or, uh, you know, supporters of insurrection or on the fence. I don't know how you could be on the fence about this question. Uh, you know, send them a book. Uh, you know, we're part of this is to reach people who, uh, you know, are disconnected from the political process who, or who have lost their will or their spine uh, about uh, that day and what it means and, and what it means for the future. So, you know, I hope some folks will. It's it's self-serving. I admit we want to sell the book. But, <laughs> um, you know, even once you buy your own, uh, maybe send one to uh, some of your electeds to your uh, you know, public library. We sent uh, hundreds out, actually thousands out, uh, free copies to public libraries and, and uh, college libraries. So you know, we hope folks will, will also join that uh, part of, of this effort. Um, I, I recently, I wrote something, it's, it's in the editing process right now. I don't know if it's gonna see the light of day or if I'm gonna have to self-publish it, but um, I talk about this current election cycle, 2024, and I do think there's a lot of differences between 2024 and 2020. Mainly, uh, the the one through line I do think is that we are, as as a whole, not just a small handful of people that call themselves leftists that watch this show, but we are as a whole kind of motivated to act on rage. And there's these 
things that enrage us that get us to the streets, right? In 2020, it was George Floyd, COVID lockdowns, tons of racist rhetoric, kids in cages. There was a lot, right, in 2020 um, that brings so many people out to get behind someone like Joe Biden. Like, let's just be honest about who Joe Biden is, right? This is the guy that sponsors the 1994 crime bill. We don't really talk about mass incarceration without talking about 1994. Um, Joe Biden's been a notorious war hawk his whole time in Senate. But a nation gets behind him because we are enraged at what's going on in the Oval Office with this Yahoo that's in charge that just won't stop spewing nonsense whenever there's a, a microphone in front of him whether it's nonsense about COVID, border walls, border walls that get constructed during the 90s, during the Clinton terms, right? He wants to get rid of DACA, but DACA already had some issues with it as far as not being a pathway to citizenship. You couldn't vote on it. There's a lot of issues with DACA that it had already. There's tons of holes in it. And Obama deported 2.5 million people. But still, the images we saw of Donald Trump enraged enough people to get out to the polls to vote. Where is the rage now? Because I don't see that same thing when it comes to this current administration to get people to vote against the idea of another Trump presidency. And and. I'll add this caveat. Um, my family is, I don't know you guys, my family lives in the Bay Area where I'm from. I drive up to see them. And there's a part of the interstate where my phone dies and I can't listen to music. And the only thing that comes on is right wing radio. So listening to right wing radio, one thing that surprised me this last time up was these callers that were calling in that were pro-DeSantis. And the hosts that were like, no, 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 DeSantis isn't the answer. It's Trump. So are, does the media need Trump more than the people want him? And is there, is there enough energy in the current Democratic Party to vote him out if he is the Republican uh, nominee for president? Well, Jason, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, we'll you have to have us back on the show in in December or or um, you know next January. Uh, but I do think you know for for me, are the reason we created uh, you know one sixth the graphic novel was a call to action around preserving and improving, right? Our democracy, our commitment to human rights and equal justice our commitment to the truth collectively. So, you know, my call to folks is vote, vote democracy and human rights. Uh, and, you know, people are going to have to decide what that means for them. But I think we know what the alternative is. Uh, we know who has said he's going to be a dictator on day one. And, you know, let's believe him this time, right? Uh, you know, we, we know 
who has been a lifelong white supremacist and surrounded himself with, uh, you know, in some instances, neo-Nazis, much less, uh, you know, white supremacists and, and white nationalists. We know, uh, you know, what the current Supreme Court could have been and what it is. So, you know, I'm not, not going to tell anybody who to vote for. Uh, you know, my call is vote and vote for democracy. Listen, ask questions, ask all your elected officials and candidates questions about their commitment uh, to the, the basic values of human rights uh, and the truth and democracy, and then vote in that way and also take other actions, right? We actually have a, we worked with a, a great organization in the Pacific Northwest Western State Center to create a free education and action guide that goes along with the comic mm -hmm. book. If you uh, scan the QR code in near the back of the comic book or, or just go online, you can get a free copy of, of the education and action guide. And, you know, it, it recommends that urges people to vote uh, for their, uh, you know, democratic and human rights principles, but also, you know, to stand behind uh, librarians who are under attack and oppose, uh, you know, book bans, uh, to stand behind uh, transgender folks who are under attack uh, and immigrants who are under attack in our country, to, you know, talk to our kids about uh, equal dignity of all people and, and not just uh, as, as uh, in opposition to white supremacy. So I think there are a lot of things we can be doing. My own view is we need to come together to support uh, the basic fundaments of human rights and democracy and to improve them, right? We, we have always fallen short as a nation, sometimes horribly, horribly short of those values. Uh, but when we've moved forward on those values, we've we've taken great strides together as a society. And I think we know what will happen if we uh, allow a giant step backward. John? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a huge amount of at stake here to be very uh, enraged about. Um, we saw a preview of that in the first Trump administration. The second one would be, I think, completely unrestrained um, and more organized and on along multiple fronts. Um, and I think that, you know, on the economic level, we're going to see corporate greed completely unrestrained um, at a level we've never seen before. We're going to see massive tax cuts for billionaires, as we saw in the last Trump administration, that take away um, funding for um, from all social programs that benefit uh, working class people to particular communities of color. Um, we're going to see uh, targeting of cities and states that were not loyal to Trump, um, you know, that did not vote for him. Um, we are going to see on the political level, the gutting of the judiciary. Um, we'll probably see more uh, Supreme Court appointments that will mean rollbacks of any progressive um, advancements in the last uh, many decades. Um, we'll see punishment of dissent. He's been very clear that he wants to uh, punish his enemies and opposition, um, targeting of political opponents. We're going to see, uh, you know, uh, dismantling of democratic institutions that that can hold the executive accountable, that can hold him and his cronies accountable. Um, and the goal, let's just be clear, not just of Trump, but the larger movement is to have permanent minority rule. 
as we've seen, um, you know, Republicans can't win outright majorities nationally um, and have to gerrymander every district they can. Um, and the goal is to, as we experience demographic changes and social changes in this country, is to make sure that an increasingly small minority of people um, remain in control. And um, I think socially, we're going to see the banning of abortion uh, in more states. It's, you know, almost a third of the country has lost that right. I think they're going to go for as many as they can. Um, we're going to see the outright aggressive and violent targeting of marginalized groups, gay, trans communities in particular. Um, immigrants uh, are going to face uh, in, you know, we're going to go back and even worse, uh, the kind of brutal incarceration of migrants, separation of families. Um, we're going to see the banning of books and targeting of libraries and other public institutions. We're going to see massive militarization of the border, um, which, you know, as someone who lives here, it's a nightmare scenario for the communities here as well as for migrants. Um, uh, possible invasion of northern Mexico. It's been talked about. There's there's actually a lot of political momentum on the right to do that, um, which is so insane. It's, it is insane. But again, a war, it, the whole point of a war is to distract from failures on other on other fronts. And so it'll be um, that's exactly what the role I think of a war would be. Um, and then I think another thing we should be very real about is that um, and we saw this on January 6th when all of the militia groups that had assembled were waiting for Trump to declare the Insurrection Act as the trigger that would give them carte blanche mm -hmm. to um to use violence on that day, but also uh, essentially deputize all these extreme right-wing militias to um, to use violence against fellow Americans. We've and seen this before. Which is, something, which is something that I thought that was interesting, which is something you guys portray in, in the graphic novel, is that there's a militia, there's militia forces that are out looking for, again, quote-unquote, anti-fascist resistance. Um, which, which I think is interesting. And, and I find that interesting because one of the things I see with January 6th, and again, this is just my opinion, is I can't remember the woman's name, Ashley Babbitt, the woman that got shot. Mm -hmm. She's an important figure, in my opinion, for this reason. If you think that law enforcement stepped aside because they were in on it, you're kind of sadly mistaken. Um, because Ashley Babbitt is the proof. When they there was an opportunity for them to get close to senators, they put a hole in somebody. And I think the way the Democratic Party has shown these trials and tried to cover these trials, I think January 6th is something that they're banking on to be fuel to get people to go to the polls. Also, I think it's showing this over and over again uh, allows people to feel comfortable with state violence. Right? Ashley Babbitt's a bad person. She was going to threaten democracy. So we put a hole in her. And if you think Another January 6th, I'm saying this more to the audience as a whole, if you think another January 6th can happen that easily, I don't believe that's the case. I think people will get mowed down. I think one of the things that, you know, the CIA, 
the FBI, one of the things they have been looking for since the fall of the Soviet Union is uh, domestic terrorists. Was Gretchen Whitmer, is that her name? The governor of uh, Michigan. And there was a plot to take her life. And then in the testimonies, they found out that it was the CIA pretty much put the plot together to, to get the guys uh, you know, to do it. I think those guys still went to prison, though. But I do think there's a real fear and has been for 30 years of domestic terrorism and using state violence. You know, we don't talk about Ruby Ridge. We don't talk about Branch Davidians, you know, very much anymore. But we talk about January 6th because it, it looks different than those two things when it comes to state violence. Mainly because the state wasn't as successful in the violence as they were in those in those other two cases. Um, that's that, again, that's just my opinion. You know, I don't I don't know if you could if we're going to see that kind of resurrection. And I think it goes across the board as well when it comes to, to certain kinds of protests. Right. It's one thing to throw a can of soup at a cop. And yell at them forever. It's another thing when these guys came armed. Ready to take over the, the Capitol. I, I, I just see. The state is feeling very comfortable to open fire on their own citizens. Do you guys have an opinion on that? I mean, I would say there's been a very uh, unequal application. Uh, yeah, state violence is obviously concerned, mm-hmm. um, in particular in the squashing of you know legitimate nonviolent dissent. And we've seen the state in the United States deploy you know um, violence to put down nonviolent movements in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, and but there has been a clear I mean, you know, <laughs> if if January 6th wasn't all white dudes, we would have seen a very different response on January 6th itself. And these were people, you know, many of whom were armed, um, had stated, you know, their intent online um, and had much more nefarious plans in the work. There was a quick reaction force, a hotel room filled with weapons that was being ready to deploy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we know that, um, had that been, uh, a movement of people of color or something else, it would have been, uh, it would have been, uh, responded to with much more extreme forms of violence. And we also see like in the event, in the, in the case of a lot of militias in the United States, like the Bundys, they have had open armed, you know, takeovers, um, of government institutions or, um, you know, uh, different areas and and the state back down and so there is definitely a different application of violence here but but bundy also was like pro black lives matter which actually got him a lot of flack because right for a second <laughs> i mean because the whole thing is like i'm anti the state right yeah like my, my, was... my thing about the whole like the color my, my thing about the color thing and this is where you guys might disagree is even if you think about the move bombing i believe that happens during a black administration so when we talk about state violence, I mean, I don't know how many Black Panthers got shot when they when they went into the Capitol with guns in the 60s. I mean, laws got changed. So the idea that, oh, if it would have been a bunch of different people, I mean, I think the last time there was actually brown people trying to shoot up 
Congress, there was an actual shootout. And those people got shot, right? Puerto Ricans fighting for independence. And that was like in the 20s or the 30s. So I don't, I don't, I, 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 I think, Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I would point out that, I, again, I think the danger is not necessarily direct violence from the state. You see, um, you know, a huge surprising number of people who are armed, who hold these views mm-hmm. um, that are either white supremacist or adjacent to white supremacy. And um, and the state turning a blind eye, giving tacit approval to those groups is is a real danger. You know, if you look at the a lot of the violence in in Latin America in the era of the death squads, you know, my family was intimately involved in solidarity work at that time and churches and families fleeing. It wasn't being committed outright by the government. The government knew full well it was happening. It was working with those forces or turned a blind eye, but it was often um, these uh, militias um, that were operating, uh, you know, not independently of the government, but were not the government itself. Um, that were enacting this violence. And I think that's very real. And we've seen that in the United States. I mean, you know, the KKK and everything else. So I think it's not just a question of state violence. It's a question of how much political space is given to extremist violent groups with ties to white supremacy. And and I think that's a very real danger um, um, with uh, uh, another Trump administration. What then happens when we talk about like the Proud Boys, for example, which I think is the is the frightening antithesis to that that ideology that, you know, there's white supremacist violence. So what happens when you then have a group like the Proud Boys? And again, we look at race differently in America, right? When you live in Latin America, you understand that there's like white Cubans and white Venezuelans. In America, you're just other, you're brown other, even though you're not that brown, right? So when you look at the Proud Boys, their leader was Cuban, if I'm not mistaken. And it was somewhat multiracial. And if even if you think about, again, you live in a border town, I'm sure you've seen this. I see it here living in, in my border town, which again is different. The, the, the coasts of Mexico are very different, makeup. Um, conservative Mexicans that like Donald Trump. I was talking with a friend the other day, and he said, you know, if the Republicans could just pull back a little on the racism, there's large swaths of the Latin and Asian community that are totally in line with the things they want. Lower taxes, less migrants. And if we look at what's happening right now in cities like Chicago and New York, where you know Trump wanted to do the the pump the, the the grab them and dump them migrant caravan it didn't work out during his administration but DeSantis and Abbott were able to do it and it's kind of worked and I don't say this with any sort of glee I say this with extreme disgust masterfully it was kind of a stroke of genius you have the president of the Illinois chapter of the NAACP saying that these people are savages quote unquote now she has since gone back and apologized because of the negative press but there is a very large anti-immigrant sentiment in chicago right now amongst the black community and black political leadership so framing and i'm just i'm asking the question 
do we have to kind of change the way we frame these things? Because the reality on the ground is in, in an election year, and this is kind of where my fears come into play in an election year, you have these situations where real people are being used as pawns. And that's another thing that's disgusting. 30,000 people got dropped off in Chicago living in horribly substandard conditions. The administration kind of doesn't know what they're doing. They're handling it badly. And they're getting massive pushback. Again, 20, leading up to 2020, Chicago, San Francisco, fighting to be sanctuary cities. Remember that? We're a sanctuary city. Come here. We don't care because of the images that we were seeing at the border. And what Illinois was able to do to become a sanctuary state with a conservative state legislature, to your book's point about the power of people, is something to admire. I really believe that. To get those those laws pushed through to say we're not going to work with state agencies. If they come here and do large ice sweeps, we're going to eliminate gang databases because we're talking about people that live in mixed status communities. I think that's something to admire. But those wins that happened in 2020, again, that get people out to say no, it seems like they're being turned into to, to potential losses in 2024. Media coverage has a lot to do with this as well, right? But what say you to the reality that it's not just Archie Bunker white people yelling about immigrants coming to their city right now. It's a mixed group of people yelling about these people coming to their city. Well, I think to tie this back to to your first point about the Proud Boys, there have always been uh, people of color who have participated in the white nationalist enterprise. Uh, the, there were in, in the slavery era, uh, there were in the you know, Civil War and Reconstruction era, uh, and there are today. And you know, so whether they are you know, joining a militia or on the Supreme Court, uh, we're, <laughs> we're always going to have those folks. And I think it, it probably doesn't uh, you know, uh, kind of psychoanalyzing them is, is maybe not productive. But I think to to your other point, Jason, yeah, uh, we do need a new and better narrative. Uh, this is an era that the, the 21st century is an era of social movements, and it's an era overwhelmingly of intersectional social movements, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, and uh, trans liberation and the, the dreamers and immigrant rights movements. These are 21st century movements primarily led by young folks mm -hmm. who understand the ways in which we're all in it together, the ways in which uh, human dignity over bigotry against any group uh, mm -hmm. diminishes all of us and erodes our society. I think that's where the change is going to, the positive change is going to come from. And yeah, you know, a, a new narrative is a crucial part of that. Getting out in the streets is also a part of that. And I think, you know, this is an, a moment 
uh, to do both. Okay. Yeah, um, it's definitely a challenge. There's a lot in what you said and a lot of layers. Um, and I would say the, the MAGA movement has very expertly tried to animate uh, grievances between marginalized groups, um, for sure. And, uh, you know, and if you are someone who comes from, you know, uh, a marginalized group of any kind and are willing to, to uh, attack um, members of your own group or, um, or another, you get a, you know, you rise through the ranks pretty fast and you will get a lot of so, uh, support oh, yeah. as a social media influencer. And that's a strategy. Um, and it's, it's meant to divide us and, and um, undermine any efforts building a broad-based coalition and for, uh, you know, a multiracial democracy uh, rooted in ideas of justice. Um, that's the goal. And, um, and it's been very effective. But um, at the same time, what brings us together is a shared vision, shared values um, along the lines of what Alan said. And it has to be more than just an argument to preserve democracy. I think it's fantastic that, you know, that that January 6th is being talked about um, and is going to be central to the campaign. There's a lot at stake if we lose democracy in this country that will impact everything else um, that we've tried to achieve as a society, um, you know, in a progressive direction, but, um, but it has to be more than just the argument to preserve democracy. It has to explain why, um, you know, a more just society with greater equity and inclusion is, um, is at stake and, and that it is makes a more, um, you know, a more, uh, prosperous society as well. And I think there's, you know, I saw this on the border with um, the the last election. You had um, Kamala Harris and other, you know, proxies uh, uh, for the campaign coming down to the border and making an argument about the soul of the country, um, which is, you know, a very abstract thing to say when people were really trying to learn more about what the alternatives were that the Democratic Party was putting on the table in terms of greater safety, security, stability, economic stability for working class families. That is who most people are down here. And uh, no surprise, Bernie Sanders was wildly popular. And it was really sad to see a lot of people, Latino voters, move from Bernie Sanders to 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 Trump or more likely just not voting. And so um, it has to be a multi uh, layered argument about democracy, but also um, about a society with greater justice and equity for everyone. And, and the Democratic Party is hamstrung making those arguments um, in part because of its its relationship to the corporate donor class and other things. And so it really has to make that argument and be able to back it up um, yeah. if it wants to, to, to put a vision that people find credible and that will change their lives in a lived material way. I want to ask you guys about that before I let you guys go, unless you guys have to leave right now. I know it's getting late where, where you guys are. And I want to First of all, thank you guys for spending so much time with me today. Again, wherever you guys are, are watching or listening to the show, there are links in the description to the comic book. And I do want to, to actually get back to the comic book because one of the things um, that I noticed, it starts off, there's a the guy trying to do a news thing and, they, and uh, he's going to have a news story. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the military people bust into the news station to stop the news story. And they're arguing about the First Amendment. And everyone's like, well, have you ever heard of the Second Amendment? Which I thought was like funny, right? 
Um, so again, please, please get the the comic if you guys like dystopian, futuristic science fiction. I would. Would you guys call it science fiction? Less and less every day, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Historical science fiction. <laughs> Maybe that's a new term. Um, before before you guys go, I would love to get you guys' opinion on what you're talking about right there, Gon. The fact that a lot of people that were in the Bernie camp, once Bernie was eliminated from the race, uh, pivoted to to Donald Trump. Why do you think that is? Alan, you go for it. Sure. I mean, look, our our uh, economic system, our political systems, uh, money and politics are badly broken, badly broken. And people recognize that. Uh, and, you know, the candidates who articulate that and then have a vision for addressing it, a broadly populist uh, vision that is not tinkering around the edges, but is is really re-envisioning our society and our systems are going to be popular with significant uh you know uh portions of of the voting public i think you know that that is both exciting and terrifying it means on the one hand that there is room there is energy around fundamentally rethinking injustice in our country the unjust Mm. system and re-envisioning a, a more just and equitable and uh, you know uh, opportunity-rich society, but it also means people are open to anything, uh, mm. no matter how dangerous and hateful uh, and uh, destructive, rather than uh, reconstructive. So you know that that means we're in a portentous but also a dangerous moment, and uh, you know candidates who recognize that. Are, are you know and are able to channel that energy I think are are going to do well with you know large numbers of of the electorate uh, and some folks get that and some folks don't get it God uh, I totally agree with that I think we've been in a in a in a populist anti-establishment historical moment since the economic crisis of 2006 which, uh, you know, which pe- people were recognizing very clearly that our system was broken and was not designed to serve most people. And Obama rode that to victory uh, as a as an agent of change and hope for this better future. And then, you know, was not able to deliver on it seriously uh, and and really demo- demobilize the the massive massive grassroots uh, m- movement that was behind him uh, once he took power. Uh, which, you know, I thought was, um, you know, the Democratic Party committing an act of, of self-amputation here. You need that populist energy, the grassroots movements, uh, particularly in times where we're facing um, crisis. And so the um, we're still in that moment. And it actually took the, the Republican Party many election cycles to figure that out. Um, and Trump was the one who really unlocked the key. Uh, you know, you had the key here, which is just become a fake populist, just mimic the rhetoric of change and fighting for everyday people, because the Democrats just left a huge vacuum uh, in terms of their ability to deliver on that. And and so um, all of that is to say that, you know, there is remains a huge opportunity to provide a real um, alternative for people um, 
you know, for working people in this country, um, for a, a new vision of how we organize ourselves economically and politically that people are hungry for. Um, and it is, it's almost absurd that, that um, Democratic Party needed an 80-year-old guy <laughs> with crazy hair was the only person making that argument. And look, you know, Bernie was marginal um, yeah. in, in the Senate, and he became incredibly popular because he was willing to champion that message. What is unfortunate is that, you know, there is many generations gap between Bernie and and um, and other folks who can really credibly champion that message. But the opportunity is there. Um, the Democrats really need to seriously commit to a vision um, and and it'll get traction. You know, Trump is running on a fake version of that and is getting a lot of traction. What would a real version of that look like? Well, thank you very much, Alan and Gan. Uh, I look forward to to getting a working link for the second uh, issue. <laughs> that right away. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for taking the time to uh, to hang out with us again. Wherever you guys are watching or listening to the show, there are links in the description to the graphic novel One Six. Thank you guys. Have a very good rest of your Saturday. I appreciate you so talking with me. Have a good rest of your day. That was Alan Jenkins and Gon Galan. I asked Gon, first off, hey, are you related to dude from Canon Films? And he said no. That's the real travesty. That is the real travesty of justice. That I couldn't talk about Death Wish 4. Because is that one of my favorite movies of all time? Is that a reactionary masterpiece of where we are today in America? Some guy running around with literally a rocket launcher. Do you know what the you know what the movie plot is around Death Wish for? Charles Bronson is on like his fourth woman by this movie, and all of the other women die or get sexually assaulted in like the worst ways ever, ever. It's, it's, it it it. I was gonna play Death Wish four for movie night one night, and Jeremy was like, I don't. Jason, I don't know. So we didn't. So anyway, and uh, in this one, his lady friend has a daughter, and the daughter is like sweet, but she's kind of wild. And she's, she gets given crack. Drug dealer gives her the biggest handful of crack I've ever seen someone give someone for free. Not that I've seen that many free crack giveaways. <laughs> that being said, he gives her this big ass handful of crack and she smokes it all and dies. And Charles Bronson and her mom happens to be a journalist. You know, all these things happen. Death wish for right? Charles Bronson looks at the mom and goes, you have to report on the drugs. It is the drugs that are killing the kids. It is the drugs alone. And so the mom is like, okay, I'm going to do an in-depth report on drugs. So she goes to her editor and she goes, I need to do an in-depth report on drugs. I'm not making this up. Someone says Death Wish for Revenge of the Architect. Yes, another funny thing in the Death Wish movies is Charles Bronson's character is an architect. 
Think about that for a second. He's an architect that has insane access to weapons. By Death Wish 4, he knows how to do covert operations. By Death Wish 4, he has taken out like four criminal organizations single-handedly. And no one knows who he is. So anyway, back to Death Wish 4. The Crackdown is what it's called. Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. So the woman goes to her editor and she's like, I need to do, I need you to let me do this story. And he's like, no one cares about drugs because everybody does drugs. And he's yelling. Like, I want to go in a, in a, in a, in a DeLorean and go back to the eighties and seventies and go to a newsroom and see if all the editors were just yelling at reporters like that. I just, I, I have to see it for my, I feel like if I went to a newsroom today, a, it'd be like four people, you know, reading a wire or it's probably just AI generated at this point. But I just want to see for myself if there's really a dude walking around with the hottest breath ever because he's just smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee in his office, screaming at people, literally melting their faces off with his coffee cigarette breath. Anyway, yelling at her, well, fine, I'll let you do it, but you're on your own. That's what they always say. But you're on your own. Fuck does that mean? She's a reporter. She's not going undercover to fucking bust a drug cartel. So she goes to the morgue and this might be the greatest scene in canon film history next to Turbo dancing on the ceiling or maybe Turbo break dancing in the hospital and and, and break into Electric Boogaloo. Dancing in the hospital that's a dope scene. When I was a kid and I watched Breaking 2 and he's dancing in the hospital like that, I was like, dude, I want to go break my legs so I can go fucking dance like that in the hospital. Anyway, she walks in the morgue and he goes, she goes, do you have the bodies ready? He goes, so you want to see the ones that only were drug related? Because he has to talk loud too. Everyone talks to this woman like she's a fucking moron. And I don't know why. Except for Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson talks to her like she's a child. Gotta love that. Maybe it's because he's 150 years old by the time he's doing Death Wish 4. And there's he has no business dating these young hot women. You guys might not think they're young and hot because it's the 80s and everybody looked 50 in the 80s. But there's a big age difference between Charles Bronson and his female co-stars. So, <laughs> I was watching this when Ben Burgess came to visit a few weeks ago, I said, Ben, have you ever seen Death Wish 4? And he's kind of half asleep, and he's like, no. I'm like, oh, you're going to see Death Wish 4. So it, he's kind of falling asleep, and even he has to wake up for this because it's so ridiculous. He, oh, the, the, So, you know, the, it's the morgue, and everyone's covered under a sheet, and he lifts the sheet back. He goes, this person here was smoking a crack pipe, and it exploded in his face. What? What is? And he killed him? <laughs> Wouldn't it just maybe take out an eye, scratch him up a little, and 
who has exploding crack rocks? Is that kind of like um, those cigar jokes from? <laughs> Where were the exploding crack rocks at? Of all the dope fiends I've ever been around, and I've been around a lot. Of all the crack. I've seen smoke of all the meth I've seen people, all the stories I've heard never once have I heard someone talk about the exploding crack rocks. How does Cecil die? Man, caught one of them crack rocks to the face. That movie is one of the greatest pieces of propaganda ever created. I think we should watch we should watch Death Wish 4 for movie night. What say you guys? I'm trying to take a look at the chat. I'm trying to keep one eye on the chat to see what you guys say about that. That would be that'd be a lot of fun. Leave in the comment. If you want to watch Death Wish 4 for movie night, we can ask Jeremy if we can have a Death Wish best of. And we can pick two movies. We have to ask because they're short movies, thank God. Charles Bronson is like, I don't have time. I can't do these stunts. By Death Wish 5, he's jumping out of second story windows, doing barrel rolls at 70 years old. I'm just not buying it. But the comedic factor, top notch. Top freaking notch. If you guys want to watch Death Wish 4 or Death Wish 3, Death Wish 3 is like the Home Alone Death Wish, where Charles Bronson is going to get the bad guys with booby traps. Like Home Alone, scene for scene, Death Wish 3. (laughs) Charles Bronson is taking out a criminal organization like he's trying to catch the sticky bandits. <laughs> Death Wish 2 is a little more gritty and disgusting, but Larry Fishburne is in Death Wish 2, and it's really funny because he tries to stop a bullet with a boombox, and he dies in the most disgustingly stereotypical way I've ever seen a black person be portrayed on like captured on film F what you saw in the seventies, you know, F what you saw in gone with the wind. Oh no. Watch death wish too. Oof. Oof. It's on like birth of the nation level offensive. Literally every black person that sees a white woman walk by, they go, and they just lose their minds. I was like, who greenlit this? No one had a problem with this? Was it that hard to get work? And what were the director's directions during these scenes? Can we get some behind the footage, behind the scenes footage on that? Lawrence, Lawrence, love your work right here. Can you get a little more rapey, though? 
Get get more black. You know how you black guys get whenever you see white flesh. The movie is highly offensive. Also has a soundtrack, the score, uh, Jimmy Page. Anton says, not with my interest to watch, though. Maybe a whole lot of Jason comments might make it fun. I've never... I, I watched that movie... Did I watch it by myself? <laughs> There's a few movies I watched. I can't say who I watched them with. And we were... I, I, what? What? Like, remember Fly By Night? For patrons... Longtime patrons. There was a movie we watched last year where we get this drop. The most unbelievable rap line of all time. Right? What gangster rapper would say that? Like, that sounds like a joke. That is a real line in a real movie called Fly By Night. Also, an offensive movie where a man leaves his job working for mass transit in New York. With benefits. He leaves his job with benefits to go chase the rap. Just chase the rap. Are you a rapper? No. But if I don't rap, I'm going to beat my kids. What? That's a line in the movie. He says if he doesn't follow his dream, he's just going to stay at home and beat his kids and his wife. Because he's not going to know what to do with himself. I was like, who wrote this? Thomas Sowell? Read the comments on that movie. I found that on YouTube. It's for free on YouTube. It's called Fly By Night. Look it up. It came out in 92. Apparently, the the film crew that did Juice, like the moment they wrapped Juice, they went to go work on Fly By Night. So there is some crossover and, and a little bit of it in the beginning. There's some of the same DJs and stuff that were in Juice. But um, it, the comments were like, we need more movies like this. I was like, why? This movie exists in fantasy land. Ain't nobody leaving their good ass job to go chase the rap. And in 1992? Fucking high? Oh. <laughs> Canon films. So I was hoping... That Gon Galan, related to the guy that gave us Masters of the Universe, the guy that gave us ninjas, who doesn't love ninjas? If you are 38 to 50 and you don't love ninjas, I don't trust you. I, I can't. If you didn't think Snake Eyes was the coolest G.I. Joe, <laughs> can't trust you. Can't win with you. Like, the ninja craze and what Canon Films did with ninjas, they created a whole lore for ninjas. And if you were a fan of ninja movies, you want to talk about white supremacy? The Asian ninja was always the bad guy. And the good ninja was a white man with a mustache. (laughs) True story. 
You don't believe me? Look it up. Do you guys know the rules for ninjadom? Do you know the most important rule for ninjadom? Only a ninja can kill a ninja. I guess. I don't know any ninjas. But seriously, Canon Films did the Ninja Trilogy. The first one is called Enter the Ninja. And the original guy that put it together, I think he's Asian. And then he brought in a guy named Shokashugi, who was kind of a stuntman. <laughs> but he was a hell of a martial artist. Actually, Shokasugi's sons are big-time martial artists and stunt people in cinema. You've probably seen them in tons of movies where there's martial arts. Um, and his sons were in his... When he left canon and he started making his own movies, his sons, when they were small, I want to say they were like six and eight, they were <clears throat> in the movies doing insane martial arts stuff. Um, Enter the Ninja, the star of Enter the Ninja, is an attack. <laughs> Italian actor that does not know martial arts named Frank Nero. I think this is his name. And all his lines were dubbed. Great movie. And then they make a sequel that has nothing to do with the first one. And they call it Revenge of the Ninja. Nothing to do with the different people. Same Shokasugi's in it. He's a star. He can do a lot of his own stunts. It's great. If you like like action movies with crazy stunts and really cool fight scenes and ninjas with fancy shit on. Like, I was so into ninjas. There was a few TV shows. If anybody's watching right now that remembers these TV shows, one called The Master. And there was a TV show in the late 70s, early 80s total propaganda show called chips california highway patrol starring um what's the guy's name i want to say Emilio Estevez, that's not his name john poncherelli he played an italian but he's he's actually of latin descent i can't think of his name for the life of me um anyway there was a spinoff of chips that never worked also extremely racist there was a team of ninjas. The, Eric Estrada, thank you so much. The, do you hear me? That the California Highway Patrol had a spit. There was a show about the California Highway Patrol, first of all. That's boring. And that show was so popular that there was a spinoff show about the Los Angeles Police Department having a department full of ninjas. None of them Asian. And the bad ninja they fought was British. I watched that show as a child. I needed that show. All in my jammies. Doing ninja shit. That show didn't last, as you can imagine. But then there was another show with Lee Van Cleef, not Asian, called The Master. Oh, 
Loved that show. Didn't last that long, but it was ninjas. I'm 46 years old. My son called me before Halloween, my five-year-old, not the older ones, and said, I was like, what are you going to be for Halloween? And he said, I'm going to be a ninja. A tear rolled down my cheek. I was like, son, I'm getting misty just thinking about it. You've made me the happiest dad in the history of happy dads. My stepmom, um, who passed away some time ago, um, knew martial arts and she had a sword and she would like twirl it around and shit. I thought she was a cool, to this day, I think she's like one of the coolest <laughs> My mom would probably not like me to say this out loud. I thought she was so cool because she knew martial arts, she could twirl a sword, and she took me to see American Ninja. And like showed me how to really appreciate martial arts fight scenes. Cancer's a motherfucker, guys. But uh, so then the canon makes a third movie that has nothing to do with the other two. Called Ninja 3, The Domination. So if you want to go back and watch these movies, if you're just chilling on Saturday, it is Enter the Ninja, Frank Nero, Ninja Lore started, kind of you can say the octagon starts it <laughs> with Chuck Norris, but ninjas are kind of like just um, henchmen, if you will. Um, Revenge of the Ninja, which has nothing to do with the ninja entering in the first place, nothing to do. And then Ninja 3, The Domination, which I did show for movie night because it is also, <laughs> Prester John says, nunchucks made thousands of kids sterile in the 80s. <laughs> if you didn't know somebody with some fake ass nunchucks or you tried to make your own out of anything, were you even a kid in the 80s? Anyway, Ninja 3 The Domination, which to me is the most glorious uh, hodgepodge of genres in a film. It's part Exorcist. It's part Poltergeist. Flashdance. I'll repeat myself. It's part Exorcist. It's part poltergeist. It's part flash dance. And it's all ninja, baby. Love it. Love it. I showed it on movie night. It, it passed the Jeremy Salmon seal of approval. The movie starts off with a rogue ninja. And you don't know why. He's just killing the shit out of everybody at the golf course. You're like, why are you killing everybody? Dusty says, full frontal ninja. Ninja 3, The Domination, starring, speaking of breaking one and two, Lucinda Dickey, who does like one movie after that. Breaks my heart. Lucinda Diggy, Diggy, Dickey 
is the girl. She's Kelly in the breaking movie. She's the rich girl that goes slumming in the ghetto and learns how to break dance. Um, I, yeah, I said that. Those are words I said about movies that I've seen that are real films. So, uh, Ninja 3 starts off, there's a ninja who's not wearing black, and he's attacking people in the day. So the whole thing is ninjas are supposed to be like assassins, and they wear black, and they have masks, and they have all this cool ninja shit, and they have throwing stars. And as a kid, I thought the throwing star was more deadly than anything. Because if you're watching a ninja film, and you have a gun, we're coming for you, nigga! You really don't mean anything to a ninja. The throwing star in a in a ninja movie defeats a gun, like rock paper scissors. If you think about real life, and you have a gun, and I throw a throwing star at you, you're gonna be like ah, and then you're gonna shoot me. <laughs> Like, that's how that works in real life. No matter where you hit me, it's going to be like, ah, if it sticks. I can move out the way. That never happens. Only, again, only a ninja can kill a ninja. In ninja movies, they move out of the way. Like, if ninjas are fighting ninjas, or even they, like, hit it. But if it's you know, random bad guy with a gun in his hand, pff, the throwing star can hit you in the head again. I'd be like, ah, and then I'm going to shoot you. I'm probably going to shoot randomly. I'm going to hit some random people, <laughs> but I'm not going to be dead. If you get hit anywhere with a throwing star by a ninja in this movie, it's a wrap for you, dude. Ninjas are also petite with superhuman strength that isn't superhuman because they're not magical. They just train. I don't understand that. I don't get it. Vampire thing I get. They're supposed to be dead. Whatever. Magical world, all kind of mystical BS. Is that supposed to be mystical shit with ninjas? There's regular ass dudes, you know, five seven, five eight, 145 pounds, but they can jump like 25 feet in the air. And in the scene, um, again, it's the golf course. The ninja is like holding the golf cart so it doesn't drive off. I'm like, does he have special ninja shoes with like some sort of magical footing? What is? He just beats the shit out of everybody. He hits them with throwing stars in the arm and they die. He's got the blow dart. That's another thing ninjas have. They have a dart and it's a poison dart. And it's fast acting poison because everybody dies so quickly. There's no like, uh, no, it's instant death. It's, was that a mosquito? And then you die. So that happens for like, 15 minutes. The first 15 minutes of Ninja Through the Domination is murder. 
You don't know why. There's no backstory. You assume, and this is this is where everybody is racist that watches that movie. They imply that they're Italians, so you assume it's the mob. It could just be Italians he's killing, which isn't nice. But you people are racist, and you assumed it was the mob. <laughs> You're bad people. It probably wasn't my mom, I don't know. Anyway, the police come. Because if you work at the golf course, or if you're just there playing golf, as people do at golf courses, and you see some fucking ninja killing motherfuckers left and right, it, A, that ruins your game. I don't want to play skee-ball next to a murderous ninja. But anyway... Ninja's killing everybody. They call the police. The police come, and the ninja starts just killing the shit out of the police. The, nin- the police are shooting the ninja, and he's just eating fucking bullets. And it's the 80s, so it's before cops have flak jackets and and uh, semi-automatic weapons and fucking... Sw- There's a, a pivot after... In the late 90s, where you start to see cops portrayed a little bit more accurately with the advanced weaponry that they really had. But in the 80s, cops were out there with, like, cap guns. <laughs> the criminals are just so much better equipped. Because that was the news stories, if you guys remember. Go back and watch the news stories. The criminals have these bullets that go through cops' vests. What will the police do? We must arm them with more. That doesn't talk about the fact they were literally tearing down the houses innocent people in places like Los Angeles that doesn't get said but anyway right back to the police so the police are shooting at a ninja remember what I said earlier guns mean nothing to a ninja in a ninja movie so eventually after the ninja has and he doesn't have a vehicle The cops are in cars. You could just hit him. Nope. He's a ninja. And he could jump 25 feet in the air. So he jumps in the tree and the cops hit him. It's like Dukes of Hazzard out here. So anyway, finally, the cops surround the ninja. I think they tell him to drop it. It's like, what is he going to drop? He is one mighty weapon. So... They unload on the ninja. Shotguns, the cap guns, they just shoot the shit out of the ninja. And he's, as he's dying, and you're like, why are you dying? You've just eaten 10 cops, shotgun bullets. You're just eating them. You should just be in pieces at this point. And he throws the thing that makes ninjas escape. Ninjas have this thing. I've wanted this thing in so many situations in my own personal life. Sorry, I don't think this relationship is going to go anywhere. And then just disappear. (laughs) 
What do you mean this registration is bad, officer? She, poof, and I just disappeared with my my microphone just fell. Damn it! Don't worry, I'm just gonna hold it like this because I can't even get it back on the thing. That's what she said. Um, and so <laughs> so he does the poof, and then the the ninja disappears and the cops are like and he's and he's left there he left his ninja outfit and the cops are like damn i guess we got him and that's when the ninja finds um Lucinda Dickey who is playing her version of Jennifer Beals character in Flashdance so if you remember the movie again it's part exorcist Part poltergeist. Very big part flash dance. All ninja. So she's a telephone line worker. So if you remember Jennifer Beale's character in Flash Dance was like a welder. Right? Welder by day. Flash dancer by night. So Lucinda Dickey's character is uh Telephone line worker by day, aerobic instructor, then later in the day, but not necessarily that night. <laughs> so, you know, the guy possesses her with the spirit of ninjadom. Again, young Jason Miles watching this movie, I was like, I looked for Asian people so I could be. <laughs> Possessed by ninjadom. Never happened. Did not happen. I do have mixed kids. <laughs> All right, I'll stop being racist for just a moment. But so we're, we're like 20 minutes into the movie. The ninja just killed like 10 random Italians playing golf. And like 25 cops, including the main cop in the movie's partner. Now, Lucinda Dickey is in the police station. They're asking, what did the guy look like? I don't know. He was all ninja and shit, right? She's doing that thing. And <laughs> someone says, will I race this ass cheese? Maybe not. But anyway, so after the carnage that this ninja has just bestowed upon Los Angeles County's golf course, the cop sees Lucinda Dickey and he hits on her. He's walking around the police station as if he didn't just see literally all of his friends die. What? <laughs> this is amazing. The last thing I would think after I saw 
my best friend die is oh is she single like that would be (laughs) i would be so hurt if uh you know me and ben burgess are walking down the street in los angeles as we do from time to time and uh you know Maniacal ninja just comes out of nowhere and kills the shit out of Ben Burgess. Then in the police station, while I'm trying to describe what I saw to law enforcement, an attractive woman walks by and I go, hold on, officer. (laughs) You only get one shot, officer, and she's hot. So. Yeah, that's the first 20 minutes of Ninja 3, The Domination. So again, canon films. Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja 3, The Domination. Watch those movies. Someone says, you want to see the t-shirt? My t-shirt is a take on the Merciful Fate album cover with Darth Vader instead of the the logo of merciful fate and it says merciful hate don't fear the dark side i am that nerd sorry but i think we should watch more ninja movies i think we should there's so many ninja movies i want to watch with you guys because as the 80s progressed and ninjas got more popular oh There's a whole bunch of these ninja movies that were made where ninjas are wearing like bright colors and they literally have headbands on that say ninja on them. Do you hear what I said? They're wearing a headband that says ninja on it. It's fucking insane. Bitch, I know you're a ninja. You're wearing fucking pajamas. And you have a sword hanging out. I. That's my vote. If you guys want to watch movie, ninja movies for movie night, we watched Ninja Three already. We haven't seen American Ninja. Oh. Also, a lovely piece of Cold War cinema. An American Ninja, starring Michael Dudikoff, another person, not a karate guy. But what's interesting about American Ninja is that he gets a black sidekick, if you will, that actually is a martial arts expert. And they do some like buddy cop ass kicking. (sighs) So much fun. So much fun. So if you guys are down to watch American Ninja... Say it in the comments. I'm down for that. I was going to do, you know, to our guest point, you know, about dystopian science fiction. I wanted to cover some dystopian science fiction because that's a little a little more serious tip. Blade Runner is really long, but I was thinking Blade Runner, Rollerball. These are like really cool dystopian science fiction movies that I think we can have some fun 
conversations about afterwards. I would love to see you guys or, or hear what you guys have to say after watching the original Rollerball, not the LL Cool J one. That one doesn't exist. There's a few movies that will not exist for us, okay? The remake of Red Dawn isn't real. Karate Kid, Will Smith's Karate Kid isn't real. And LL Cool J's Rollerball isn't real. They're like the fucking Snuffleupagus as far as I'm concerned. I've heard you guys talk about it, but I've never seen it. I'm not going to watch them. <laughs> Can't do it. Won't do it. But the original Rollerball with James Kahn, we can watch that. Back to the Future 2, that'll be a fun watch because after reading Harris's book, I don't know how many guys actually um, got Michael Harris's book. It, it makes the Back to the Future movies totally different. Um, 12 Monkeys, after reading Harris's book, made that movie uh, a very different watch for me. So watching some dystopian science fiction, I think, would be a lot of fun. Preston John says, let's watch Mud Wrestling, only if it's Mud Wrestling from the 80s. If you can get your hands on some footage of mid-80s peak Reagan-esque dystopian fucking financial nightmare mud wrestling. I could hate watch that. I could totally hate watch that. Someone says, which book? It is called Come With Me If You Want to Live. It is out now. I've had it since before he even had a publisher for it. And I love it. I think it's his best work yet. Best work yet. He wrote Welcome to the Rebellion and um, Stay Alive. Stay Alive it uses... Uh, what's the Mockingjay movie? Hunger Games as a narrative for for where we are today with capitalism. Thank you guys for hanging out with me today and I would love to hear what you guys have to say. You know, I would can we can this happen in the comments? I've never seen this happen. I've never seen anyone ask for this. Maybe someone has, I don't know. I feel arrogant enough to say that the collection of people that watch this show leave hilarious comments. Can we have a comment thread where you guys actually write a, 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 your own alternate universe January 6th story? I would love to read that. Of all the things, of all the comments, right, you only remember the mean ones. I don't know why that is. I don't know why that is. But let's start a thread. There's enough people watching right now. This would be fucking hilarious. You guys do your each comment, each line, right? Is a different. I would love to see where that goes. 
the insanity with this group of people that watch this show. Very fired up for that. And by the time I come back Tuesday, I will have fixed my mic stand. This is like old school fucking punk days right now. Like this. Um, thank you guys so much for hanging out with me. Thank you, Alan and Gon, for coming on. Someone says I was a bit bit racist. <laughs> Someone says their best work is always mean. Look, think about all these different personalities right now, all these different opinions. There were so many opinions shouting off in the show. Now, nah, fuck this. I want to see all that and see how, how a story would flow in the comments. A post-January 6th insurrection victory story. What does your alternate universe look like? How do you start it? Do you start it at January 6th? Are you going to start it um, after like these guys did where they started their story kind of a couple years after January 6th and you see the resistance getting together almost like Star Wars like? Are you guys going to do that thing with it? Or are you going to go like a whole total different way with it? Where Trump isn't fighting people. He's maybe fighting like members of, of, of Congress or something like that. I don't know. Is Trump a super is Trump a ninja? He could be a fucking ninja. There's no rules. Only the ninja rules. <laughs> Only a ninja can kill a ninja. So again, I I gotta I gotta go. I gotta I gotta fix this, first of all. I'm very upset about that. And uh, cross your fingers that this thing I wrote actually gets published. And on that note, we are...